Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this first episode back from the summer, I am joined by Matthew Rothhaus-Moser, who is a theology professor from, um, is it Azusa Pacific University? Uh, I have to admit, when I first saw it, I did read it as AZUSA, and I realized that that was (laughs) entirely wrong. Um, But uh, he has been teaching for seven years previous to this at the the theology department in Loyola University in Maryland. And he has recently published a title called Love Itself is Understanding, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Theology of the Saints, and has a forthcoming title, uh, which is Dante and the Poetic Practice of Theology, which is very fitting because he is joining us here today to talk about Dante. So maybe if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your interest in Dante. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, my my encounter with with Dante, uh, my first encounter with Dante was was not a happy one. I encountered him in undergrad, and uh, absolutely despised reading <laughs> reading him. And I sold my copies back to the bookstore as quickly as possible. I think I got about about a dollar for for each copy, uh, and and I thought, well, that's it. That's it. Okay, I've read Dante. I read the important book. It mm-hmm. was boring. I made it through. Now let me carry on with with my life. Uh, but then, when I was twenty seven, uh, in the midst of my own kind of personal dark wood, I found uh, found an old copy of Purgatorio, which I'm not sure how I had it uh, because I, I had tried to just purge Dante from my life, but there it was on the shelf and I, I uh, started reading it and I, I found Dante speaking to me in, in very personal ways. And, and so then I decided, you know what, I was in graduate school at the time, I was starting to do some adjunct classes in great books. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to teach Dante, right? That's the best way to force yourself to, to, to read a book is to commit to teaching it. <laughs> And as I started teaching it, uh, I really fell in love with, with, with Dante's story, with his poetry, with his thought. And he has become a, a consistent presence and a consistent friend in, in my own intellectual and, and spiritual life. So my relationship with Dante is, is really mediated through the classroom before it's mediated through through scholarship or research or anything like that. And, and that's kind of the the best place for for Dante, I think, is is reading him together mm-hmm. with friends who are trying to wrestle with the, the puzzle of of who he is and what he's doing, but also want to think with with him about our own life and our own kind of pilgrimage through through those hellish and purgative and paradisal states of, of life in the journey of faith. That's wonderful. I think I would agree with you in that I actually didn't have the experience of learning it in a class and I did just read it myself. But as I was reading it, I was definitely seeking out commentaries and discussions and ways that I could hear what people were thinking about and wrestling with when, when reading it, um, which I found more so than an most things that I've read that I, I wanted that kind of 
communal understanding not only that because it's just such a dense text <laughs> that i always feel like what am i missing what's the context here what's what's the deeper richer meaning and and the wonderful thing with dante is that you can keep going for that that richer and that deeper understanding and of course uh, you know i am pretty much just hopping on a bandwagon it is a big anniversary year for dante it's the 700th year since his death and so there's lots of wonderful dante things going on at the moment actually if any of my listeners are in dublin the dublin castle has an exhibition of, of dante art at the moment um it's probably worth checking out if there is anything in your area because Everyone's going Dante crazy at the moment. But I suppose for anyone who is listening who maybe only knows something very vague about Dante or feels like they always should have learned who he was or just, I guess, kind of wanted to make sure that they had their foundations, maybe you can just give us a really, really basic kind of overview of who Dante was. Dante was an Italian poet from the city of Florence. He was was born in 1265 and uh, kind of made his, his name writing uh, love poetry about a, a, a young woman that he was not married to, um, but served as his poetic and, and romantic muse, her name is Beatrice. And Dante kind of ascends to, to a position of, of political uh, power there in, in Florence in those somewhat happy days, uh, a, a poet could take political office uh, which is hard to imagine in our own day. Uh, but uh, Dante's time as, as one of the priors of Florence was, was not a happy one. He was betrayed and uh, ended up being exiled from Florence under pain of, of death, of being burned alive if he were ever to, to return. And so he was exiled from Florence in 1302 and spent the rest of his life uh, outside of, of Florence, um, wandering in exile. And it was in that exile that he, he wrote the majority of his, of his works. He has a work of philosophy. He has a work of, uh, kind of linguistics. Uh, and then of course he has the, the comedy, which he was writing from, from maybe 1307, 1309, uh, up, up until just before his death in 1321. And his mortal remains are in Ravenna, Italy now. And uh, from what I've heard, um, Florence is wanting his his bones back. He's the great Florentine poet, uh, but Ravenna is, I think quite rightly, perhaps refusing that request. Yeah, uh, you you made your historical bed, Florence. You have to lie in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think think especially because he is such a poet of exile and even within the comedy, Mm -hmm. the the theme of exile is so important that in some ways it is fitting that he's still in some ways in exile or at least his mortal remains are, as we will see when when, hopefully when you reach the beatific vision, you are no longer in exile then. So um, exactly. um, Yeah, I think I think Florence is going to lose this one. There too, and there's something fitting about about Dante coming into and and dying in the the same place as one of his great kind of intellectual heroes of Boethius mm-hmm. uh, was also in in Ravenna. So there there's something you know, theologically and philosophically fitting about that location for these of these uh, poets and and theologians and philosophers. 
been in that same place. Wonderful. And then I suppose I was going to say a little bit just to to note that I suppose his second most famous work, which I believe was completed before his exile, which is La Vita Nuova. It's a combination of prose and poetry. And as you mentioned, it, it kind of centers on this figure of Beatrice who represents for Dante the ideal woman, which is interesting because he did love her from afar. He lo- According to him, at least, he loved her instantly when they were both children. But he, he loved her from afar throughout her, her relatively short life. And so that work, the La Vita Nuova, is this exercise in love poetry, which he then kind of starts to realise needs to be turned towards the sacred. And that, I think, is really important. And it was funny, the edition of the Divine Comedy that I have has the Vita Nuova at the end. And I was really grateful because I, I hadn't really thought about it that much. But in some ways, I kind of wish I'd read at the start in that it really puts a lot of things in context for who Beatrice is and why she's so central to the to the Divine Comedy. That's really true. And, and that was the book that kind of made his name as a, as a young man, as a, as a young poet. And, and that book, like all of almost all of Dante's works, is is incomplete. The Vita Nuova is kind of intentionally incomplete. It ends with this very compelling line where where he says about Beatrice he says I'm going to leave off here now until I can have the poetic skill to say about her what no poet has managed to say about any mortal woman and then you have this this kind of gap of time and then until you encounter Beatrice in in the final cantos of Purgatorio and and you realize that Okay, he is he is fulfilling his his promise that he made as a young man, but I think even Dante couldn't foresee uh, who Beatrice would become in in the comedy. I, I think that's maybe one of the the greatest moments of like comeback or like dramatic pause or you know wait here while I go and do this. <laughs> and so the Divine Comedy or the comedy as Dante originally called it is I think arguably the at least one of the greatest works of of literature in in our history everything else after it that can be considered great on some level is probably influenced by it so that's right it's this kind of it's seeped its way into so much of how we understand our world and obviously the the afterlife and so it's split into three sections i think most people know this but it's uh, inferno purgatorio and paradiso and it follows dante from it opens with him in the dark wood of his life in the middle of his life lost and he he embarks on this journey through the the afterlife with various spiritual guides i think most famously for um inferno it's virgil but there are others and then eventually he meets beatrice who guides him through paradiso it's one of those incredibly richly dense and wonderful tales he separates the different levels of hell and then purgatory and all of the different uh, sins and the punishments and the remedies for them when you're in purgatorio and of course it can also be read as uh, in some ways as an allegory of any soul's journey towards God, the journey that you have to go on to encounter the reality of God. But yeah, it's it's hard to sum up in a few words. I don't know if you want to say anything. When I'm introducing it to my undergraduate students, there's the long explanation, which takes an entire semester. <laughs> and then there's the short explanation, 
which is Dante goes for a walk and he talks to people <laughs> and and that's really it yeah uh, so that's the that's the short one but the longer explanation is, as you're suggesting it, it takes it takes a, a semester it takes a year it takes a lifetime to really grasp you know dante's comedy is one of those books that you can never read twice because you never encounter it the same way two mm. times uh, because it just has these depths that are con consistently uh kind of unveiling themselves the more time that you can pause and, and linger with them uh, but but yeah i think that's a that is a great uh, first pass through through the narrative of the comedy Dante is in a, a state of spiritual crisis. Heaven intervenes in unexpected ways, and he undergoes this you know, therapeutic journey through through the afterlife, which is, you know, on some level, a, an autopsy of the soul. Right? It's mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's it's about looking at the souls in the state of damnation and figuring out what is what killed them. It's this kind of apocalypse of of sin, you know, stripped away of all of the comforting delusions that we tend to build up around sin. And the soul in this pur this purgative state of, of how does grace and mercy find us and lead to our transfer the transformation of who we are. And then in the state of blessedness, what what does what does the soul rightly ordered to God and neighbor look like? And there's this famous line in in a a letter that Dante wrote, and I'll put a little asterisk by that because there is debate over the authorship of this letter. But Dante says that the purpose of the comedy is is to move readers from a state of misery to a state of happiness or a state of blessedness. And so I think that's one of the powerful things about the comedy is that the narrative of Dante going from the dark wood to the beatific vision of God is also the kind of moral and spiritual work of the poem for the readers and trying to find us in our dark woods which and is, guide us towards, towards that happiness. Which is why it's important not just to read Inferno. <laughs> Absolutely. I always ask students, how many of you have read Dante before? You know, you get a couple of hands raised and... And I said, how many of you have read only the Inferno, read Beyond the Inferno? And mm -hmm. every single hand goes down. And I said, great. So nobody here has read Dante. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you just read the Inferno, you think Dante is just this cruel-hearted, narrow-minded, arrogant man. Mm -hmm. And you don't ever encounter the Dante that Pope Francis called, you know, the great poet of mercy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's interesting that that we have essentially just ignored two thirds of the comedy, which is where the comic part of the story <laughs> actually happens. Yeah, right. Inferno is a tragedy. Yeah, uh, and the on the journey from misery to happiness, it's to travel as far as you can into misery and then just stop there. <laughs> that's exactly right that's exactly right <laughs> um, that kind of defeats the purpose I think <laughs> yeah I have to say I think actually and it's not surprising then that what this topic that we're going to kind of delve into the most on this is in Purgatorio I found Purgatorio the most interesting and the most exciting 
I do get the appeal of Inferno. It is it is kind of a thriller minute in some ways of what <laughs> what sin's coming next. But yeah, I I love the redemptive journey of of Purgatorio. I was going to say for our listeners, if if you do want to listen to a really excellent step by step guide through the through the three of them, I would recommend uh, the work that Matthew did with Jennifer Frey on a three part podcast and part of her podcast, uh, Sacred and Profane Love, where uh, you guys actually just went through the the kind of narrative of each of them um, as best you can. I think they were like an hour and 45 minutes. So even that's not quite long enough <laughs> to cover everything um, because I thought it was quite funny, which was that the, how I came to choose the topic for this podcast, which is the, the end section mainly of, of Purgatorio, the Garden of Earthly Delights, was I was listening to those three podcasts and as you were getting to the end of Purgatorio, I was like, I can't wait to hear what they say about Eden. I can't wait to hear what they say about the Garden of Earthly, the Earthly Delights. And for understandable reasons, you guys had to skip that bit largely. Um, so I remedied the situation by just saying, well, I'll just get, get Matthew to come on this podcast and talk to me about it. And it works perfectly. And that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that podcast had already been like, two two and a half hours <laughs> of recording it so so yeah if if any of our listeners do want to just get a more a rundown of the of the different instances of the plot and, and maybe a fuller idea of what happens in the totality of, of the story I would really recommend those because for this episode like I said we're just going to zone in on one particular aspect which centers on the end of Purgatorio where having climbed the mountain uh, Dante enters what is Eden and when I was reading it I really had a sense of feeling like that up until that point as you said so much of the story is Dante meeting people and so the characters are often very vividly drawn but in some ways a lot of the landscape feels like it's kind of sketched in behind line drawings Um, and then at the end of the climb the last terrace is uh, is to to do with the purging of the the sin of lust and they have to jump through these flames and it's very much like a blockbuster movie that you would see in the cinema if we were still going to the cinemas these days and once he's through that it's almost like the whole world comes into sharp focus you're suddenly in this landscape that is really richly described really richly conveyed in a, in a lot of different senses there's there's smell there's a touch of like the breeze there's the visuals there's the, the the sounds of the birds and it felt like to me of like coming into focus feeling that sense of being surrounded in a landscape and and once I reached that part it made me think then back on what I thought about the landscape up until that point like why is this so different what have I like how how has he built up to this moment in terms of the landscape so you know we're going to focus just on this section but also in the context of Inferno before it and then also um, going on into Paradiso which is also very richly beautifully described but definitely more ethereal you have moved from what we as we as humans might hope to encounter at least some version of into what is truly beyond what we (laughs) we can ever hope to experience. Uh, Absolutely Paradiso is is kind of Dante's experiment in how many different ways can he talk about light (laughs) Yes, because it really is just moving from light to light, glory to glory, which you know is no is no small feat. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, I I have to say, Paradiso is one that I want to go back 
and and read again because I do feel like reading it, it it is so almost beyond what I feel like. It's just at the very edges of what I I can kind of comprehend as I'm reading it. And so I definitely want to go back and read it slowly and and take in all of that imagery and find out what he's saying in each section and and really understand it. But it it is beautiful, but it is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's it's the greatest work of literature for a reason. It's definitely pushing the limits of what what you would expect from writing. And he does at least say quite a few times, my words cannot explain this. <laughs> right, right. And he also says, like, like you, don't, you don't need to follow me here in Paradiso. Like, you can be good with the first two. And I know a lot of my students wish I took him up on that. <laughs> um, That's great. So I think maybe... As much as I would do want to get to the Garden of Eden, we can maybe actually start with Inferno because everything that Dante does is about um, replicating and then inverting and uh, you know changing your perspective on things as you go along, so that you're always building up your um, knowledge and your references and your imagery. That you know to have one set of imagery in one and then to do the opposite in a in a later stage of the journey is is very telling. And so I think I mean the Divine Comedy famously begins with nature. It begins with the dark wood where um, Dante finds himself in a crisis. And so I think it's really telling and important to reflect on at least at, at to begin with the, the dark wood and then the sort of a few elements of nature, the blasted, horrible, wretched version of nature that you get in Inferno. Yeah, Dante wakes to find himself in this, in this dark wood for the straight way is lost and and so some of the, the first description that we ever get in the, the comedy is of that dark wood. And it's, it's a, a, a ratchet description. He, he, I mean, he even evokes from the very beginning, like I can't really put into words how terrible this place is. He, he says how hard it is to tell the nature of that wood, savage, dense, and harsh. The very thought of it renews my fear. It is so bitter that death is hardly more so. That's not ever been my experience walking in the woods. Uh, so there has to be a profound spiritual darkness that that attends to this physical arboreal space. And, and, and I think that's already kind of signaling how Dante sees he uses physical spaces, not necessarily allegorically, but but he does kind of infuse the, the spiritual and the natural. Mm-hmm. That natural is, is is his way of disclosing spiritual spaces. And, you know the the uh, dark wood almost almost becomes like a an infernal sacrament in some ways, right? It's not a a means of grace. It's a it's a means of destruction. It's a means of being being lost. It's kind of spiritual and existential wretchedness. Yeah, and I think even before we get to the section of of him entering Eden, there is a sense of being exiled and and that calling back to that Genesis, um, exiling from the garden. That we are no longer in communion with creation, or no longer you know, um, at home where we where we ought to be. That there's a a condition of like fallenness 
in this moment that he, like you said, I don't. I, I think I was reading somewhere that saying it's not so much that the wood itself it like indicates sin in his life, but more that condition of of human life lived with sin that we are constantly tripping ourselves up and not able to see where we're going and um, feeling lost and afraid. It's a very different kind of fear, which as a medieval, he he will talk about God in a a terrible and awe-inspiring kind of way that was very in tune with what medieval writers and thinkers expressed the encounter with God. But this is very much the opposite of that. This is the, the fear that you get when you're alone and not encountering God. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the entire moral and spiritual landscape of of his inferno. So much of it is images of the natural world and so of the goodness of God's creation that become infernally twisted to be these kind of grotesque parodies of God, of God's creation, of Christ, of the of the church. And so rivers in hell will be rivers of blood or rivers of of mud or or frozen sheets of ice that imprison souls of of treacherous people. So what sin does that it that it takes these things that that should be life-giving and and should be kind of sacramentally ordered towards God and and then it twists twists them so so fundamentally that they become natural world becomes you know spiritual prisons for for these damned souls who who have chosen something other than god and dante is quite clear about the sin doesn't just have these individual effects it has it has effects on the natural order it has effects on our political life our our shared life together and that's really what his hell is it's it's not just what kills an individual soul but how does how does sin twist everything that every good gift that god has given i think that's almost most visible because believe it or not the dark wood at the start is not even the most horrifying wood in the inferno by the time we get to canto 13 where we encounter what's called the the wood of the suicides which is this um honestly perhaps one of the most it's hard to say what are the most striking images in, in inferno because it is just pretty much a series of striking images but at least for me i found it incredibly striking it's this space of of again another twisted dark wood um which turns out to be made of trees that are the the sort of I guess the souls are the manifestations of people who have committed suicide, who can speak and and can still feel pain and talk about where they are. And, and on these trees are sitting these harpies that are still, I, I think it's such a observant portrayal of the experience of despair in life that those harpies that are attacking you and, and oppressing you in some ways are still sitting on your branches as, as you are in inferno tearing at them Mm. tearing at the the what do we call them soul trees uh these these souls who have have been kind of twisted into into trees and the only thing that they can do is is lament and dante's playing with some imagery here that he's he's taking from virgil uh, who's guiding him at this point virgil's aeneid 
and these these souls in the trees they're they're in this kind of agony and in this kind of spiritual state of of lament but it's a muted lament because right? their voices are are trapped within the the bark of this tree and it's only by breaking one of the branches and mm. talk about grisly imagery break a branch and blood pours out and then finally the soul can can speak i mean it's a it's a horrifying uh horrifying image but it reflects so much uh on where dante was in the first canto when he when he woke to find himself in in the dark wood you know some of some of the vocabulary is the same of this dark wood the, the blindness um of of the pilgrim and, and so you start to reflect backwards this is this is how dante's entire comedy works these images build on each other and they interpret the one similar ones that have come come before so you have to ask like oh is dante in canto one when we first found him was he on the verge of of the second dark wood mm. uh, was was he on the this kind of this 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 or the suicide because the person he talks to here is a, a fellow named Pierre de la Vigna, who is a poet turned politician who was betrayed by his by his political party and uh, and wrongfully accused of some crimes. There's all of this imagery that's so similar to Dante's own story, and so you have to reflect back on on where Dante has been, and that's significant for when we get to the dark wood that is. The Garden of Eden. What does? How does that kind of retroactively change our readerly relationship to these previous two dark woods? That's exactly it. And then I suppose the other you've touched on it slightly, but the other kind of natural aspect of of Inferno are these these rivers. Is there four or five of them in Inferno? I I was trying to find out whether the um the the boiling pitch is actually a a, a river or just a a, a lake of pitch. <laughs> there are the kind of four classical ones and, and Dante takes the, the river Lethe and he moves that to Purgatorio, which I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. But but yeah, I think that's the, the four main rivers of, of hell. And uh, like you said, they they come almost as a as a punishment, at least in some of the cases, that souls are burning in these rivers of, of fire and, and and as as we said, the, the river of mud in particular strikes me as just so off-putting and grim and dark that you would be stuck. And I think there's that, that real sense throughout Inferno, that that feeling of being stuck. There's no sense of movement. And then when we get to the next county, there's like that sense of going up the mountain, that, that there is motion, whereas, yeah, there's this confinement and this sense of restriction to everything, which obviously then culminates at the very end of Inferno with these great demonic forces frozen in ice that they they cannot move mm-hmm. and that yeah that that stuckness is really kind of driven home by what he's saying if that's the experience we have as as readers in inferno i mean inferno is is an, an interesting and exciting book but it, it it weighs heavy on the mind and soul mm-hmm. as as you go because it's dante's moral logic is so relentless right you're just looking for oh just some break of mercy and and dante just refuses to to give it to us 
and, and, and so everything that we've kind of been trained in the rest of our life to kind of look for, for solace or comfort or peace, Dante's Inferno just strips that away. So you, you think about, there's imagery of Dante standing next to a river and you think, oh, this is nice. He's kind of catching his, his breath on his journey. And then it's a river of blood where there are where there are centaurs running around the shore shooting bows and arrows at uh, souls who are are drowning in in the blood and so all of this natural imagery that we've we've i think in our kind of post-romantic world we've associated with with grace and peace dante is is depriving us of that so when we get to purgatorio it does feel like okay, I can breathe again yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. And I think it really shows how humanity can be at odds with creation, that it can cease cool. to be the kind of gift that it is and the inheritance and the, the the gifted creation from God and become that we can be so at odds with it that it's it doesn't give that comfort and it doesn't offer anything in terms of complementarity or, or security or any of those things. Um, and so, like you said, then we move into Purgatorio, which is this kind of mountainscape, which is surrounded by water. And the, the, I think you pointed out to me that the water imagery recurs at the end of each section that, um, that Dante is very kind of deliberately bringing us along with water. And, and so then we go to the beginning of the Purgatorio. And again, it's, we go from frozen water to living water that has a sense of, like you said, that breath escaping from your chest as you're like, oh, this is this is more like what I'm used to. And it's it's earth like he, he actually pictures this is not a sort of imaginary mountain, but he goes to great lengths to give us this very detailed description of exactly where this mountain is in the world that you could, I, I don't know, conceivably go and, and find it. It's, it's you you're quite literally on firm ground again and again it's a it, it has its own beauty there are there's you know the sunsets and the sunrises are are a big part of it and and climbing this mountain this rocky landscape which has at different times carvings in it so it, it does have a character of its own and has this sense of of being at least back in creation as we know it that it's not this oppressive force Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a wonderful moment at the very end of Inferno. Uh, Dante and Virgil climb down Satan's frozen body <laughs> and they, uh, they cross the equator and there's a literal kind of conversion to the other side of, of the earth, which is the southern hemisphere where uh, the mountain of purgatory is. And, and Dante says, we emerged from this underground, you know, abyss of hell once more to see the stars. Mm. And that's how Inferno ends. Yeah. And so it ends on this kind of conversion, this, this redemptive moment. And then it begins with those same stars. And Dante looks up in the sky at the beginning of Purgatorio, and he's seeing new new constellations of stars that haven't been witnessed by any living eyes uh, because it's only the, the souls of the dead who who come to, to purgatory on their way to heaven. He sees these stars that no living person has seen since Adam and Eve. And so there is this kind of new or renewed, I should say, renewed relationship with the natural order 
that begins to emerge just in the first couple of lines of, of Purgatorio and this this harmony between between the heavens and the earth is reestablished. What what had been kind of lost in Adam and Eve's exile mm. from the Garden of Eden is is re- beginning to be restored uh, on the the mountain of, of Purgatory, and Dante gets to to witness that and come back and tell the rest of us about what is there on the other shores, uh, and in a way of of perhaps modeling to to us the the kind of hope that should animate our own kind of pilgrimage through through this life. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then, of course, as we said, when he reaches the top, then we enter this amazing, the like the descriptions of this this garden, and there's uh, not just a garden. There's a there's a huge amount that happens in there. I do uh, think it's it reminds me a lot when I was reading it of reading the book Revelation and that sort of apocalyptic as uh, it literally tearing the veil back that there's suddenly that there's a new sight that there's a new insight. And we're going to touch a little bit on some of the discussions that are happening in Paradiso, but just to also to to note uh, before we kind of dive into a, a deep discussion on on Eden here, just to say that then it this very literal description of a of a garden then becomes this echo that happens throughout Paradiso that it doesn't end there that there is still a, a, throughout Paradiso these descriptions of garden like things and. Um, that that heaven is full of I, I, and again that really medieval thing of like saints are flowers and they give off fragrance for God like the, the I, I wonder if it's particularly telling that the medievals talked a lot about fragrance and, and the holiness of fragrance um, but that uh, that sense of it becoming like a garden but in a whole new way of understanding it I, I think I have, yeah, the whence thereafter I said, O oh, perpetual flowers of eternal joy that only one may make me perceive your odours manifold. And again, there's more, there's rivers. He talks about rivers a lot. Uh, out of this river issued living sparks and on all sides sank down into the flowers like unto rubies that are set in gold. So when you get to, to Paradiso, it's let, less about a physical setting and more about the created world being the only way that we can even begin to contextualize the beauty of the of the light of God. And so these references that are, are as close as we get as humans to understanding what that beauty is like, which I think helps that you've already had that lengthy description of Eden that kind of prepares you for saying, okay, well, this is Eden, but even beyond what you're thinking of for Eden. It's an Eden and a garden and, and imagery and, and language that has become in some ways as transparent as earth as humanly possible to the light of divine glory mm-hmm. and and love right you have this obscurity of hell this darkness in hell where the divine light just the only way it penetrates into hell is through these kind of interruptions of like christ's harrowing of hell and dante's journey through hell or or even the 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 parodies of of christ and and the trinity and then you get to purgatorio and the light of divine glory is seen in the way that the stars shine down on the mountain and the spiritual effect that they have on the souls that are making these journeys up up the mountain towards towards their salvation and then and then the the kind of fragrance and 
and the beauty of of holy innocence uh, reestablished in in Eden, and then as you make that journey into Paradiso, Dante's language and his imagery becomes much more lyrical, much more ordered to. I'm I'm not trying to describe things. I am simply trying to praise things, and mm. and so there is that kind of linguistic and poetic shift that I. I think discloses how Dante wants us to think about, you know, this this journey is for all of our human things, our, our ability as linguistic creatures, as imaginative creatures, to become fully ordered to God so that God can can shine uh, most perfectly through our our humanness and our human capacities and our human images. Yeah, I think that really ties in with like I mentioned to you that I wanted to just pick up on this Theoria Physicae, which is this idea of sitting in contemplation of nature, natural contemplation, and having that not leave you with nature, but actually order you towards God. And that in order to even kind of approach that kind of contemplation, you need to go through that purgative step of of the purgatory Mm -hmm. that Dante describes, that it is about ordering yourself, and that in ordering yourself, you will come to know and understand the nature of of things of created things that you know i think from a medieval point of view they would say that like a rock desires to be a rock and is fulfilled in some way in being a rock that there is a kind of um and that's not to anthropomorphize things but to say that you know in creating things god gave them an inner purpose which he is fulfilled in, in, in just being what they are and that when we are as we are supposed to be and that is right, rightly ordered towards God that's when we can fully understand creation better and be at one with God and so this kind of reconciling yourself to nature and sitting in contemplation of it and allowing it to praise God and then from there for you to praise God is this um part of prayer that can be enormously beneficial for us and unfortunately for our modern world it it requires things like silence and a lack of distraction and (laughs) all of these things that we just almost cannot access anymore but that I feel like for me reading this section of Eden was a real lesson in Obviously, you know, my, my world is not an Eden, but to, to take the time to sit and let creation speak to God and uh, allow me to listen to that. It reminds me of a, I'm reviewing a, a book by a theologian named Mark McIntosh uh, on the divine ideas tradition in Christian mystical theology. It's a wonderful book. highly recommend it. Uh, and I, as I was reading it, I kept writing, Dante, Dante, Dante in the margins, uh, which to be fair, I do that in almost every book that I read, but this one was especially potent. Uh, so there were a couple of lines that I, I wrote down in preparation for this that I thought that I think fit so perfectly with, with what you just said. Um, so Macintosh says, God in eternally knowing and loving God in eternally begetting the word and breathing forth the spirit eternally knows and loves all the ways in which God's own life may come to be shared and imitated by all which is not God, so, mm. so creation. 
God in contemplating the inexhaustible existence of God understands and cherishes all the innumerable ways in which the divine existence may become the ceaselessly giving ground of each finite being. And I think that's so much of what undergirds this natural contemplation that you're you're talking about. It's it's this recognition of the spiritual density to to creation that a rock is a rock, but a rock is also also reveals something of the the God who knows and loves that that rock. And so in Macintosh's idea, and I think this really fits with Dante, natural contemplation almost becomes a kind of ascetic practice of letting go of one way of perceiving, oh, it's just a rock. Yeah. Uh, and, and entering into another, another uh, way of perceiving creation in a way that attends to this kind of divine density in the gift of creation that we have. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. And I think it it ties in with the fact that there's a sense of Dante entering into Eden. And because he's going into such detail, like, I I think I have a quote here, which is talking about how like, the there's a sense of like, blurriness and in like, not even it's not insubstantial in that it feels very real in Inferno, but it's not clearly defined. It's it's very much moment by moment passing through particular images, whereas this is much more grounded in a particular space. And instead, exactly that he says that the inferno is a region whose outlines are decidedly blurred. The scenery seems to have no real poetic existence, independent of the allegorical statement it was meant to convey. The earthly paradise, on the other hand, while figuring forth a crucial moment in the spiritual life of the narrator, exists for the reader in distinct images, precise colours, shapes and sounds. And I think part of that is because Dante himself names them. Like, he goes through the trouble of describing each of them in quite intricate detail and I know I was listening to the Wyoming Catholic College podcast and they had Jason Baxter on who was talking about viewing this as the kind of imago mundi the this medieval tradition of of dis- giving you this overview of, of a map of the world and I studied a lot of the kind of maps and the encyclopedias of medieval traditions when I was at university and, and those things are wild like they will they will give you so many descriptions of things that definitely don't exist <laughs> but uh, they're fascinating and they're while because I I get very annoyed at people who try to say that the medievals weren't um, scientific which I mean you like even just read Dante just read Dante (laughs) he is such a wealth of scientific information but even even still these are not just about conveying like oh a coastline goes in this way or this country is located there it's about conveying the idea that the whole universe was created and has a purpose and has a meaning beyond its meaning that it's not just like you were saying a rock is a rock but it also in some ways is a name of god in that it reveals something about god for us um and that that's that part at the start of genesis when adam is naming all of the things in the world that that's him being in communion with god and so that there's a sense of it actually praising god in naming these things and that having this time of like adamic naming is is very important for 
Dante in that it's it's when he ceases to be in exile, he's in communion with God, he's gone through the purgation of purgatory, he is now, he's crossed the, the last flaming <laughs> wall before him and he has entered into a space where he can fully be reconciled to God. And I know you had a, I've heard you mention how there's a line in it where Virgil instructs um, Dante to follow his pleasure at this point. And that seems like such bad advice without understanding the lead up to it. It absolutely does. And even before Virgil says, follow your pleasure, he says, look at the sun shining before you. Look at the fresh grasses, flowers, and trees, which here the earth produces of itself. So Virgil, this is Virgil's final words in mm. the entire comedy. And it's significant that Virgil says, I can't see any further, so I have to deposit you to, to Beatrice, and Beatrice will be your guide. But you, Dante, until she comes, just look in, in this, this world that you're in. Right, this is the dark wood transfigured and redeemed. And so there is that encouragement in Virgil's final final instruction, this encouragement to natural contemplation. In some ways, the moral journey that he's been on so far wasn't an end in itself. Mm -hmm. Right? Dante becoming good wasn't an end in itself. It was to create the kind of character in him that can see things truly and take delight in things and take pleasure in things in a way that fits with and corresponds with the kind of delight and pleasure that God takes in in these very things so that Dante's pleasure becomes, you know, transparent to or identical with with God's. So you know, it would be terrible advice if we hadn't <laughs> gone through the previous the previous uh, journey, but it, it's such a, a key point for for me as a as a theology teacher because so many of my students will come with this understanding of christianity that christianity is exclusively a morality right it's do good don't do bad you'll go to heaven you won't go to hell and they want to read dante into that framework and and i think no let's pay attention to what he's doing right morality is about creating the space so that you can be present to god and neighbor in in a way that that draws you into the the reality of of God and and God's life and God's gift of of creation, uh, and so I like that that's Virgil's final instruction. Not yeah. Dante, you know, keep your keep yourself in line. Yeah. Don't screw up again. Stay out of dark woods. It's like they'll go wander in this dark wood because now you can see it for what it truly is. Yeah, exactly. There's that sense of freedom where it began with feeling hemmed in by this place. And then like we said in Inferno, you have it even further in terms of not just being trapped inside a wood, but being trapped inside the wood of the tree in, in the form of the suicides. And I have a, a quote here from John Ruskin, which is the first aim of Dante in his landscape imagery in the earthly paradise is to show evidence of this perfect liberty and of the purity and sinlessness of the new nature, converting pathless ways into happy ones, so that all those fences and formalisms which had been needed for him in imperfection are removed in this paradise, and even the pathlessness of the wood, the most dreadful thing possible to him in his days of sin and shortcoming, is now a joy to him in his days of purity. And as the fencelessness and thicket of sin led to the fettered and fearful order of eternal punishment, so the fencelessness and thicket of, of the free virtue leads to the loving and consolated order of eternal happiness. 
I think that it's a great quote. It's a great quote and it sums it up wonderfully. And then that sense of then turning and giving praise. Because the other thing I loved in throughout Purgatorio was that he interweaves all of these hymns. And so there's you, you can track all of the different songs that happen throughout the Purgatorio. Naturally, as you might expect, uh, Inferno is pretty devoid of music. Um, as you said, even with the, if we go back to the Wood of the Suicides, there's that sense of being muffled that they, they have to even endure pain to express themselves. And so there's not any sense of even a kind of riotous goblinish music that we might <laughs> expect. Um, it is devoid of music. And then you get to Purgatorio and, and so much of it is turned towards, it's almost like each each hymn that you can say is is almost the key to unlocking the the freedom from a particular sin and so in praying these these hymns that, which are also prayers that they they allow us to move past these sins and then you get to um to eden and it's this kind of eruption of music from the landscape itself it has this beautiful description of the birds and the trees that says uh, it, I think it's in Canto 28, that yet not from their upright direction swayed so that the little birds upon their tops should leave the practice of each art of theirs, but with full ravishment of the hours of prime, singing received they in the midst of leaves that ever bore the burden to their rhymes. That sense of like, it's the, the leaves are almost providing the, the, the rhythm section and they're providing the, the, the melodic section and all of creation is is working together to be this one moment of eternal um, hymn to to God and that music and in that way art are part of the, the giving glory to God. That's one of the, the major revelations that Dante himself has in that early work, the Vita Nuova, when he's thinking about poetry. Uh, his early on in in that small little book, He's writing poetry as this, this kind of expression of his own poetic and romantic woundedness. And, and it's almost this, this kind of put on self-pity. And he has this kind of moment of poetic conversion where he realizes, oh, no, the, the purpose of poetry is to praise. And, and, and so it, the Vita Nuova is a kind of poetic conversion narrative. And then later, after Dante's exile, he writes this this book on on language and poetry called uh, De Volgari Eloquencia, which he abandons. But he gives this. It has to be one of my favorite passages in all of in all of Dante. Uh, but he gives an account of Adam's creation, and he says that uh, he depicts Adam's first word as God's name, as the divine name, so that the first word spoken. In creation is is a hymn of praise and a shout of glory, and, and so it's just fitting that that you know in in Dante's framework, Adam is is representative of all of creation, and the very fact that the first human word of creation is this this praise of glory. Of course, we should expect to see. Eden as welling up with the divine presence so much that it spills out in glory and the leaves and the birds and, and the, the sound of the wind on, on the grasses because that, that corresponds with what humans are made 
to do and to be, right? Instruments of praise. And I think that Dante understands his vocation as poet, as participating in that kind of created, that creative hymn of praise. I think that's wonderful. And it reminds me how much I like the the fact that Dante can kind of be the Adam in that space because we then meet Adam again later in Paradiso. And that was one of my favorite encounters in Paradiso is the the meeting of Adam. And just just as like a little tangent, you you recommended a talk by, is it Christian Maeve? Is that how you pronounce it? Um, It's on YouTube called Knowing Oneself, Knowing God. And it was was really amazing. I really enjoyed it. And he really picks up on even, and this will just show you the kind of like layering of details that you can get from Dante, which is that, you know, this, that he uses this word sweet fruit or or apple, but, but fruit pomo that you can, track how it's the the kind of it's used in the context of the aim of the pilgrim's quest like what you're looking for is this sweet fruit and then once he gets to to purgatorio it becomes satisfied that he says all of your cravings for sweet fruit will be satisfied and then when you get to paradiso the figure of adam is introduced as the sweet fruit that you know he finds that the thing he was searching for in the apple was actually within him all along. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. And I was reading, I think it was Eleanor Cook as well. Like I, I have to say, I was trying to read it. It was a little bit beyond me, but she was picking up like individual words in in the Canti about Eden, which were like, this references um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and uh, the book of Revelation. Just by this one word, Beati is like referencing the book of Ezekiel. And then you can tie it to the gospels and and then you can go on into the the book of Revelation. This kind of she was making the argument for this sort of repeated echo that follows you. That you can you can hear it almost like kind of ringing in your ears the whole time that you're in this space. Um, which I think again to to mention like we were saying it's a sort of in some ways an echo of the the book of the apocalypse because as much as we're saying it's lovely and wonderful and an amazing description, it then gets kind of strange. <laughs> Because what happens then is, I, 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 to me, I love the, the section of the, the procession. Essentially, there's a procession that Dante witnesses with his guide, who is this very enigmatic figure of Matilda. But the, he sees this procession, which is it, all of these figures that people have spent a lot of time saying, well, this these two people represent the Old and the New Testament. And then obviously the, the four Gospels are pretty easy to figure out. They're, they're, they're the symbols that you would expect. The virtues of faith, hope and love are three women dressed in different colored robes. And it's this this procession that's in some ways to me obviously it was all of the parts of uh, of the christian faith but it kind of spoke to me quite a lot of the mass that sense of the like the the procession into mass that like that moment of of revelation of of encountering god and I, i just thought it was so beautiful and i love how it's introduced um in that he describes it first as creation and then he realizes oh no it's this new thing because he says um, a little farther on seven trees of gold in semblance the long space is still intervening between ourselves and them did counterfeit but when I had approached so near to them the common object which the sense deceives lost not by distance any of its marks the faculty that lends discourse to reason did apprehend that they were candlesticks and in the voices of song hosanna so this sense of the actual creation sort of almost blending into what then becomes the procession which is the revelation of Christian faith to us here on earth and this is almost like as close as we get to understanding what then is going to happen in in Paradiso. 
And and there's so many echoes here in in that parade of the feast of Corpus Christi. And so of course you have this this kind of sacramental layering of this scene as well. Uh, all all of creation is in is in some ways summed up in Christ's flesh, which is then broken and given mm. as as the the restoration and the glorification. Of Eden, so I, I think that that's a, a fascinating aspect of of that as well, given given the kind of sacramental qualities of Paradiso and the Eucharistic imagery in Dante's kind of final vision of God. Yeah, and that feeling of like this is this is the tangible version of what will be intangible in Paradiso. That you know, this is what is the gift of creation and the encounter of of faith in God that is possible in creation and those things are a gift and then much like the book of Revelation it gets pretty weird (laughs) at least for me Um, there's a lot of things that happen with a griffin and a cart and I don't think I would even attempt to to explain in any great detail but there there are some very good commentaries on it but um, I think it's just one of those moments where you're kind of like oh we were in one we were in one kind of mindset and now we're in a very different one and I think that's also reflected in the way that he finally meets Beatrice and she immediately starts kind of being angry at him and and rebuking him and saying that you you weren't faithful to me and so it's almost like you you feel like you've made it you feel like you've achieved everything you're you're in the Garden of Eden what could what could possibly go wrong at this point and yet there's still more to learn it's not the end point that there's still more to to understand and encounter absolutely the the great shock of the reunion with Beatrice is that it's not this wonderful, consoling, innocently romantic reunion. Beatrice berates Dante for, in a sense, loving others after she died at age 25, (laughs) which is reasonable of her, unless, of course, she is, as, as I think Purgatorio 30 labors to make clear, Unless she she is truly a little Christ, a, a mm. Christian, right? She she is how Christ has been made known to Dante throughout his life, and by him taking up and directing his poetry and his minds towards other things, he in abandoning her is is abandoning Christ, and that again, there's a, a really interesting theology and metaphysics there because this is either just it's just incredibly blasphemous idolatry to say beatrice is christ or it's a very orthodox understanding of both christ and the human person and that what blessedness is and beatrice is is blessed she is in heaven with god it is to be an uh, image and, and an icon of who God is. To be that, that uh, extension of Christ's incarnation in the church and in the community of saints. And so there is this, again, infusion of the natural and of, of the human person with divine density that Dante neglected and that's his kind of final confession 
that he has to make before he is ready, made ready for, for heaven. He has to recognize, oh, not only did I sin, I also failed to see how Christ has come to me in and through the world and specifically in and through Beatrice. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I had a quote pulled out here from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, where he says, Misuse of creation begins when we no longer recognize any higher instance than ourselves, when we see nothing but ourselves. And so that sense of not seeing Beatrice because you're too busy looking at yourself in a way, um, that you're turned inwards. And Dante then has one last sort of task to complete before he enters um, Paradiso, which is to go back to the rivers, as we were talking about. So as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Matthew, that Dante changes the kind of originally conceived topography of of hell and includes the river of Leith um, in in purgatorio in eden rather than in inferno the the river of forgetting um and then he adds i believe his own creation which is the river of you and so these two rivers prepare you to enter paradise so you you pass through leith which makes you forget your sins and, and forget all that needs to be forgotten and then the the second river helps you to remember the things that were good to be <laughs> to begin with as far as i understand and and it's interesting it's it's a baptism mm-hmm. scene that dante has taken through these these two rivers and the person that kind of guides him into the waters if i'm remembering correctly is is matilda this perhaps guardian of eden image of unfallen eve image of of innocence natural enjoyment natural contemplation she guides him into the rivers and dante has this this great language of of the waters filled him from from the inside and then she's taken over and handed over to to beatrice this kind of image of of christ so again there's there's a, a kind of trajectory of of natural contemplation leading us to divine contemplation even in dante's baptism and and i love that imagery of going through through the the river of lefe and and feeling freed from even the memory of the shame of your sin Mm. and that gets reflected in in a line i think in paradiso nine where dante is told by by one of the saints yeah, here in, in, in paradise, we don't weep over our sins. We, we smile instead mm, because yeah. it changes the, our, our relationship to our sin. We no longer see the shame of it. Instead, we see, we see um, the, the sin as, as the encounter and the experience of, of divine forgiveness, divine mercy, divine grace. And, and I love that that's what characterizes the, the moral landscape or spacescape of, of Dante's Paradiso is, is smiles. And there's a, a wonderful essay by Peter Hawkins called All Smiles, and it, it studies the theological meaning of the smile in, in Dante's comedy, and, and it's, it's a magnificent essay. That's wonderful. Yeah, I didn't notice that there was quite a lot of smiles in in, mm-hmm. in described in Paradiso. And I think that's great because it'll bring us to talk a little bit more about Paradiso. So as we said, you know, the, the landscape itself becomes more ethereal. It's more about light. Um, 
But that doesn't mean the discussion of creation ends. Instead, we get quite detailed discussions on, I guess, the the why of creation rather than the what of creation. And I think you were maybe going to lead us through some of the kind of metaphysical discussions in Paradiso. I think it's twenty seven to twenty nine. Yeah, I mean, we could we could spend another hour just on these these yeah. cantos. Uh, but Dante's Paradiso, just a kind of overview, is is it's not so much a, a kind of moral transformation that that the pilgrim undergoes. It's more of an intellectual conversion um, in in which he's he is learning to see and to love the good, and so much of that is getting his mind, his his noose, his intellectus to be properly ordered towards, towards God. And part of the culmination of that is he's had explorations of justice and grace and contemplation. And he's just had an examination on faith, hope, and love in front of Jesus, Mary, and all of the saints of heaven. So if you've ever felt nervous before an exam. Uh, at least it wasn't in front of the, the congregation of heaven, like Dante's was. And then he and Beatrice ascend to, to the prima mobile, which is kind of the outer ring of creation. It's where creation begins. It's, it's that point in Dante's cosmic imagination, I suppose we could call it, where eternity translates into time and space. And here that Dante learns about the angels, uh, which a lot of contemporary people are are not expecting. Why so much talk about about angels? And also where he has a kind of extended discussion on the nature of time and the nature of space. And it culminates in Paradiso uh, 29. And there is the dense metaphysical things that uh, we may not want to to go into to detail with uh, but it it kind of reaches its culmination in in the idea that what creation is is infinite love opening up like a flower into new loves mm. right that's the image eternal love opened up into into new loves and so I think it's it's telling that Dante uses garden imagery, flower imagery for for that, but it is this this idea that um, that God had absolutely no need for creation. That creation is, in a sense, creation serves no use, no purpose outside of the sheer gratuity of divine delight that this is what it means to name God as love. Love, by its nature and its character, wants to, wants a beloved, long for the, the, the beloved, to, to love what is other than, than itself. And so he has this, this wonderful imagery of eternal love opening up into, into loves in time and, and space. And I always ask my students what I, I think is a, a question that Dante would want them to consider. What would it mean 
for us to live and act in a way this is true what would it mean to live as if we really believe this to be true if the way that we saw our neighbor and the dogs and cats and the trees and the birds what would it mean to look like if we saw this as god's eternal love translated into time and space what kind of disposition would we have towards the world if we really saw in this way and i think that that's one of one of the reasons why paradiso has increasingly become my favorite part of the comedy because i feel like it more than the other two calls for this transformation of sight and this transformation of of attitude to towards the world and i think it's anticipated in eden where we just were where there's all of this imagery of playfulness uh giuseppe mazzotta calls this dante's ludic theology that uh that Matilda is like dancing and singing and playing in creation because she sees it properly. She sees it as eternal love opened up into into new loves. The language with which Matilda describes Adam is Adam exchanged exchanged light-hearted frolic for sorrow and tears. And one of the the descriptions of the angels that oversee um earth and the moon in these cantos in paradiso are the ludic angels those angels that are at play and so i think there's this beautiful kind of convergence uh in in paradiso and in this kind of metaphysics like if this is how the world is and how the world is created to be maybe one of the most truthful ways of being in the world is summed up in the child at play mm. who is able to innocently non-self-consciously delight in the world's givenness and even that you said about dancing there that reminds me of i think cs lewis talks a lot about how the medieval perspective on the heavens was so much more richer and and less like focusing on dead space and more about this idea of the dancing of the spheres that I think there was a was it a medieval or renaissance poem with John Davies I think who instructs people to dance like the the dancing spheres above you that like in order to dance that that brings you into order with the cosmos and that that is the kind of natural state of of God's creation is dancing and and joy and uh, like you said, that that playfulness. And I think that's maybe a little bit tying into what you were saying from those descriptions of God creating out of joy, not out of not out of need, not out of use, but out of pure effusive love and joy. There's imagery in Purgatorio sixteen, seventeen, somewhere in there, of Dante's looking up at the at the heavens and uh they're described the creation of, of the heavens is, is described to dante as as a, a a dancing child spinning out from from her her father's arms uh and and that's the the rotation of the spheres above him is 
is this kind of movement of of play and and dance and so like all of these images in in dante they're they're nested Mm. inside of each other and it's only when you kind of get to to the end of paradiso that you can kind of look back and you can see them all unfolding inferno is just so tiring right (laughs) it's 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 such a slog there's so little play there's so little joy it's such a suffocating experience of even of nature because it's underground Mm. it's cut off from the air that you need the oxygen that you need to to play uh it's cut off from the stars that are spinning around you you really are kind of cut off from the world the deeper and deeper you go into the inferno and so it makes sense that as you get back into the open air you start getting this this harmony this musicality right different sounding together in this this harmonic way and that leads to music, leads to dancing and play, and all of these images kind of kind of start fitting together. And it's this is the the wonderful joy of reading Beyond Inferno, <laughs> at least in my mind. That is wonderful. I think that's uh, covers most things we wanted to talk about. I do feel like you can just keep talking, as we said. Um, I have one last Dante question I wanted to ask you, which is that especially for anyone who's kind of approaching this from outside a, a course that pr- prescribes a particular book. Is there a translation of Dante that you would recommend for people? A lot of really, really good ones. Um, I tend to, to use Robert Hollander's three editions. Mm-hmm. They are massive uh, because he his notes are are really really detailed but he's he's a great guide the the translation is good and accurate uh his his wife jean is a poet and so it's very poetically sensitive so i think that's quite good anthony esselin has a translation uh mark musa has a a translation um john chiardes is a is an older venerable uh translation so it's it it's hard to go wrong with with some of the more recent some of the more recent translations. I find Hollander to be to be a good overall translation, and it's a beautifully desi- designed book. It gives you an outline of what happens in each canto mm-hmm. and voluminous notes. So that's the one that I always tend to recommend. That's good. I actually can't quite remember which translation I read because I borrowed it from the public library and it's gone back. Um, and to my to my shame, <laughs> when I was trying to buy a copy for myself, I did end up, and listeners of the podcast will know how much I adore Gustave Doré, I did buy an edition largely based on the fact that it uh, included the Gustave Doré illustrations <laughs> in the text. So he's a a wonderfully vivid illustrator of of Dante. Him and William Blake. William Blake's illustrations of Dante yeah. are very different, much more ethereal, but but haunting as well. I know. I've always really wanted like an online sort of click through adventure game where you can like click through the different illustrations, but maybe like slightly 3dified like put depth of perspective in them and because you just feel like you could totally sink into those illustrations and surround yourself um they're they're 
gorgeous. And as as always with Doré, he was prolific and so illustrated everything that you could imagine of <laughs> of the different steps along the journey. Um, so, but yeah, that that was amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. That was a, a wonderful discussion. I have one last question, which we always ask. If you could just give us something you're enjoying at the moment. Gosh, what am I enjoying at the moment? Uh, I, I just finished uh, Rowan Williams' newest book uh, called Looking East in Winter. Um, which was was really really excellent, and uh, as always, I really really enjoy uh, getting out into the California mountains, mm. uh, which are are just kind of in my backyard here, uh, especially in the cool of the evening. So, um, looking forward to to getting out there and enjoying the vistas. That's wonderful. My my thing I'm enjoying at the moment is not quite so edifying. I didn't get time to watch a lot of the, the Olympics, which is a little bit of a shame, but I did happen to end up reading a book set at the Olympics completely by accident at the exact same time, which is one of the books by Colin Cottrell in his Dr. Siri Paboon mystery series, which is normally set in Laos in the 1970s to 80s. It's a very quirky, interesting um mystery series that manages to have supernatural elements but without undermining the need for like logic to actually work out the story um but the one i read recently is called the rat catchers olympics um which is set about the i think it was the 1980s when the olympics took place in russia and obviously the communist countries were on display so it follows the this team from laos going to the Olympics and having to solve a murder while they're there. And I would really recommend, (laughs) I would recommend that series. I would really recommend that book. And it felt very fitting to be reading while the Olympics were happening, even if I didn't get to watch very, very much of it. Yeah, I love a good mystery series. So that's great. (laughs) And thanks again for joining us. And for our listeners, thanks for coming back and listening after the summer break. And we'll be looking forward to lots of other great episodes that are coming up soon. And you can always follow us on instagram that's risking enchantment podcast um and you can find us online rachelsherlock.com and all of those good things you can always reach out on the on the website and you can sign up to our newsletter which is at rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast so thanks for listening this has been risking enchantment music by kevin mcleod you can follow me on instagram and twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.